Hi, this is Sarit Schwetzer, and welcome to the It Is Taught podcast, a podcast devoted to the teachings of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, as recorded in his most famous work, the Tanya. My hope for this show is to make these teachings accessible and relatable to the average person, regardless of prior Jewish education or affiliation. The episodes follow the prescribed daily study portions and are meant to serve as practical lessons in how to live your life as your true self and develop an authentic and powerful relationship with your Creator. I have personally experienced the effects the study of this work has had on me, and I'm excited to share what I can of this knowledge with you. So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to episode 21 of the It Is Top podcast for the 9th of Tavius in a leap year. And um, so today we are continuing with chapter 7 of Likutei Amarim, and we're continuing on the topic of Klipas Noga. So just to give a little bit of a recap, we're talking about this whole, the topic, the general topic lately has been klipos. Klipos are shells, they are husks that God created that conceal godliness. So he, so as mentioned previously, nothing exists apart from godliness. Everything at its core is essentially godliness. There is nothing other than godliness. However, in setting up the world, God set it up in such a way that some things conceal him so that this reality that everything is godliness is not apparent to the naked eye and may not be apparent even, you know, after much speculation and much meditation. And so the way by which he concealed this reality of the godly nature of everything is through these husks, which are called klipos in Kabbalah. And so what we've been talking about in Tanya is that there are different types of klipos. So we said that there are the totally impure klipos, the three klipos tatmeos, the three impure klipos, which I'd like to think of as being totally opaque, that they don't let any light through at all. And now the topic that we've been talking about yesterday, and we're going to continue it today, is this other category of klipa, which is called klipas noga, which loosely translated means a klipa which is a little bit more translucent. It's like a luminous kind of klipa. And the reason why it's called that is because it can go either way. It does it does have the ability. It's not entirely bad. It has a little bit of good within it. And because of that little bit of good within it, it does have the ability to shine godliness and to portray its godly nature if only used for the proper purpose. So we talked about yesterday how... This klipa is the source of all the things in the world that are permissible for a Jew. It's the source of a Jew's animal soul. It's the source of all kinds of different foods and inanimate objects and things that we're allowed to use, but that aren't necessarily inherently holy, but can be used for different kinds of purposes. And yesterday we talked about how if we use these things for holy purposes, like making a really nice Shabbos meal or telling a good joke in order to expand your mind, this is a way of elevating these klipos up into holiness. Today, we're going to go into the darker side. And today, we're going to talk about what happens when you use the klipos in a negative way and what that looks like and what what happens when we do that. So the example that the Ultra Rebbe starts off with is somebody, so we talked yesterday again about somebody eating meat and drinking wine to expand their mind and to think about God and to think about Torah or maybe to have a really nice Shabbos meal. 
and to sanctify the Shabbos in that way. And um, to, so now we're seeing the flip side of things. What if somebody just indulges in wine and guzzles and indulges in meat and guzzles wine down just to fulfill their indulgence, the pleasure of their body and their animal soul? So, and if you remember in a previous episode, we talked about, I'll give you a moment to um, to think about this, which elements within the animal soul would this correspond to, this kind of behavior? When we said that there's the four elements of earth, wind, fire, and water. So that uh, which which of the four elements, if you can remember, has to do with indulging in physicality? I'll let you think for a second. <laughs> so the answer is the element of water. The element of water of the four elements that come that are found within the godly soul is the one that is responsible for this type of physical indulgence that a person has. And so when a person engages in this kind of physical indulgence, when a person drinks wine in this really indulgent way and eats that, you know, just eats the meat in this like super gluttonous kind of way, what happens is that they take this klipa, this klipas noga that we said can go either way, and they bring it down. And it becomes at that moment totally and utterly bad and it becomes encompassed within the other three klipos which are totally 100% bad and impurity and and are impure and uh, and the person's body that's doing this now becomes a a garment and a vehicle a chariot for these things so at that moment when a person is engaging in this kind of gluttonous indulgent behavior they literally are making their bodies into a chariot for total and utter evil. So that's pretty intense. So the altar Rebbe says here, he gives a little bit of a saving grace. He says, until the point that a person goes back and returns to serving God and his Torah. And this is on the stipulation, if it happened to be that this wine and this meat that the person was indulging in was kosher, this makes them allowed to return with him as well. So we know that there's this idea. We're going to talk about this a little bit further in Tanya, but the word in Hebrew for, like words in Hebrew are really, really specific and they're very telling. It's not just like a random language that's just descriptive. But if you look often at the root of a Hebrew word, you can actually understand what the word means. So the word for permissible in Hebrew is mutar. It's memvav tes resh mutar or heter. Heter is something that's allowed. It's to give you permission permission to do something. This is in contrast with the word asur, asur, which means forbidden. So what do these words mean? So the word in Hebrew, mutar, it comes from the same root of another word in Hebrew, which is levater, which means to yield. Like let's say, you know, if two people are having an argument and then one of them says, okay, okay, you know, uh, you win, you know, and I'll, I give up. Basically, that's the same root that the word mutal comes from, which points to its ability to kind of like let go and not be so stubborn or stuck, which a soul, in addition to meaning forbidden, it also means to be bound. It's something that's bound. So this is something, a contrast to understanding these two words and how they relate to what we're talking about here. We'll see that this there's actually a very deep Kabbalistic reason for that. So what we learn is that basically things that are permitted, things that are mutal, are free. And what that means, this is the realm of the Klipas Noga that we've been talking about. And this means that they are malleable. They can move. So they're free to move from one place to another. So this means that like we're talking about here, that let's say we have this individual that's eating food and really indulging gluttonously in a really, really unhealthy way, you know, 
to maybe an alcoholic even, somebody who's just really indulging in alcohol in a very unhealthy way. So what the Alder Harper is saying here is something very interesting. So long as the meat and the wine that they were indulging in is kosher, even though at the moment that they were indulging in these things, they brought their bodies to become vehicles for this total evil and total negativity, that the by virtue of the fact that they are permissible, permissible things, a person has the power to go back and to free them, to them, to get to remove them from this filth and to bring them back into holiness. And all they need to do in order to do do that is to go back and to serve God properly. However, the Alter Rabbi relents, even though yes, a person, you know, can return to serving God and um, is able to elevate this food back to holiness a person shouldn't think of this as being like a free pass to go you know indulge in food and then just later on be like I can redeem that later because he says that even after a person repents in this way there's still going to be what's known as a rishimu there's um, a trace like a, a remnant trace that's left inside of the body and this is why the body needs what's called chibuta kever. Chibuta kever is, is literally translated as being purgatory of the grave. And this means that there's a certain suffering that the soul needs to undergo to kind of cleanse itself after it passes away. And this is what happens here. And so what it's basically saying is that any at any time, if a person... So here's, here's the process to break it down. Let's say a person goes and, you know, out, goes out to eat and eats this really, really lavish meal and they don't have the best intentions in mind. They're just really indulging in it and eating in a really gluttonous way just to fill their stomachs, drinking that wine, just to forget their troubles and be in the moment, be in the pleasure, you know, in this really, really hedonistic kind of way. So at that moment, their body becomes a garment and a vehicle for total and utter evil. Nevertheless, they can then go back afterwards and realize what they did and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And then go back and return to serving God and return to being more authentic to their more godly self. And after they do that, then they have now redeemed that Klipas Noga from the evil forces and they they were able to elevate it back up to its proper place in holiness. Nevertheless, a trace of that impurity will remain within them until they die, at which point they will have to undergo the purgatory of the grave, the Chibuta Keva, that will have to cleanse them and rid them of this. And so only in death, basically, will a person be totally cleansed from this impure spirit that comes from there. Okay, so up until now, we've been talking about permissible things. So things that are, you know, eating food or engaging in different kind of activities that are technically permissible, but the person didn't necessarily have the best intention while they were engaging in these activities. But what about if somebody actually engages in activities that are forbidden? So the altar rabbi gives the examples specifically of eating forbidden foods or engaging in sexual activities that are forbidden. So for example, adultery, incest, you know, things like that. So these things, as we've learned previously, do not come from klipa snoga, from the more luminous, translucent klipa. They come from the three impure klipas that are totally impure. And these fall into the category of what we know of and we call asura. So like we said, asura means forbidden. And it also has the dual meaning of being bound. Being They are bound up. So why do we say that? Because they are locked up. They're like um, tied up in the chitzonim, in the, the outer forces, these forces that conceal godliness. And they 
are trapped there and they're just going to be there forever. And the altar rabbit says that in such a case, the, the godly force within these activities, when a person engages in these activities and the godly forces that are inherent within there will not be able to be released until the future when what will happen in the future when death and impurity will be totally eradicated from the world. So that's what's going to happen in the future time. But, you know, that's, you know, that's not right now. And it's not something that we necessarily have control over. So, you know, that's kind of a big deal. So that's, you know, so that that's kind of like, a, you know, the, the major intensity that happens that the big difference between engaging in permissible activities that don't when you don't have the best intention versus forbidden activities, what, regardless of your intention. So with permissible activities, you can always redeem them basically versus forbidden activities are locked. They are stuck. But the altruist says, and here he gives a, a nice little um, get out of jail free card, so to speak, is he says that there is one way that even somebody who engaged in these forbidden activities, that they could redeem these things. And this is if they engage in what we know of as tshuva. So tshuva is a, one of those weird words in Hebrew that is often translated to mean repentance, but it's not really the best translation. It means return. And there's going to be a whole section in Tanya later on about tshuva and what that means. But so tshuva, so it's to return. So with a great return, a great sense of tshuva, that is so great that a person's sins actually turn into merits. So what does this mean? That somebody returns to God in such an intense way that their sins turn into merits. This is where their return to God comes from a love that is so deep and so strong in the heart with such a yearning of the soul to cleave to God, where his soul really thirsts for God, as if somebody is in a parched land and has no, nothing to drink at all. And this is coming from this realization that basically they were stuck in the Sitra Ahra, in this other side, and so far from God with such great with such great distance. So their soul is going to strive and and thirst for God in a way that Sadiqim cannot identify with. Sadiqim don't have this kind of thirst for God, the, the righteous people. And this is why it says that there's this concept that we're Bale Tshuva, we're returnees to God, stand. Sadiqim, total Sadiqim cannot stand, meaning that like total Bale Tshuva have something over Sadiqim, have a spiritual thirst for God and have a spiritual intensity about them and something higher, spiritually speaking, than than Sadiqim have. And so to understand this a little bit and, you know, this analogy of thirst, I think it's it'd be helpful to think about this for a second. You know, one thing that I kind of thought about is this idea of, of fasting and this idea nowadays, it's that concept of intermittent fasting is very popular. It's something that I engage in myself. I try to only eat between the hours of 12 and 6 every day, you know, give or take. Sometimes I don't always stick to it exactly, but more or less that. And so one thing that if any of you have ever practiced intermittent fasting, something that you'll start to notice is that you really start to get in touch with what real hunger means. So, you know, you often hear people say they, people wake up in the morning, first thing in the morning, they say, oh my gosh, I'm starving, you know, or it's like the end of a long day. And it's like, oh, I literally, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm starving. I'm, I, I, I could eat a horse or, you know, whatever it is, or I'm so thirsty. I can't, I can't breathe. Or, you know, people use these very hyperbolic kind of statements about thirst and about hunger. And what you start to realize when you've ever engaged in fasting of any kind, maybe even, you know, when you fast on Yom Kippur or whatever, you start to realize that 
When you thought you were hungry in the past, that is not actual real hunger. Often what we interpret to be hunger is boredom, being tired, craving certain foods, feeling sad, whatever it is, you know, and only somebody who has actually properly fasted and actually has deprived themselves of food or drink for a significant amount of time, then you start to get in touch with, oh, okay, this this is actual hunger, you know, and there are people who engage in fasts, not just for a few hours, but actually for a day, for two days, for three days, for prolonged fasts and doing that kind of thing, that can actually get in t- get you in touch with with real and true hunger. So I think it's really interesting that the Alter Rebbe uses this analogy of thirst here because it's a very similar thing, spiritually speaking. So somebody who, you know, somebody who's a tzaddik, somebody who is a righteous person, they feel very strongly that they thirst for God and, you know, perhaps they really do and they really need God and they're very in tune with that, which is amazing and good. But when you have somebody who is a Balchuva, so that's somebody who went strayed from God, who went away from God and who, you know, rebelled against God and, and engaged in all kinds of sinful activities and everything. And then they have this mo- moment of awakening and they have this moment of realization of how far they've strayed and wh- and how distant they are from God and what they've done. This rude awakening is actually going to give them that thirst that they could never have experienced had they not fasted, so to speak, from God, you know, had they not gone away from God the way that a tzaddik has. So that's a good way to kind of understand this idea that why this tshuva, this great tshuva from out of love is so, so powerful to the point that it can make a person actually redeem these sparks and that where their sins can actually turn into merits because this it's so, so powerful in that way and why these kind of people who are Bali Chuva can stand in a place that total Tadikim cannot stand. And so then, you know, the ultra just continues and he concludes here and he says that, so this is really the kind of chuva that we're talking about, this chuva, this great, great chuva that leads to this great love that could allow a person to redeem their sins and turn them into merits. However, if somebody just does like a regular kind of returning, like they just return to God and, you know, they feel bad about what they did, then sure, God will forgive them and they'll be totally forgiven. However, we can't say that their sins are going to turn into merits or that these sinful activities they did that were trapped inside of the klipos now can rise up until the point where, like we said, in the future era, that's the only time when they really will be able to be elevated and emancipated from the from these this evil dark place is really only going to be in the future when there is no more death and there is no impurity so uh so that's yeah so that's it for today so just a little recap so today's topic has been all about going against god and doing things that are not for god but actually just for self-indulgence and we brought this up uh, we made we brought up two categories of this there's the category of doing this kind of behavior with things that are permissible and engaging in activity that's technically permissible, but just not having the best intentions behind it. So, you know, really indulging in food or wine in a way that's not for God, but just for for gluttony, for, you know, indulging in yourself. And then we talked about what happens when you indulge in activities that are outright forbidden. So like forbidden sexual activities or eating foods that are not kosher, things like that. And we talked about how to elevate both of these things and how it's really different. So in the case of permissible activities, if a person engages in permissible activities in a way that's really indulgent, 
so even though at the time what they're doing is they're actually drawing down these activities from Klipas Noga into the three Klipas Hatmeos, the totally impure Klipas at that time, in order to redeem it, all a person needs to do is really just shift their intention and reestablish their connection with God and go back to serving God and they're good to go. And, you know, these these klipos will be elevated. There will be a trace of it that does remain within their body and this will be purged out of them when the person dies and they go through the purgatory of the soul. However, generally speaking, you know, they're good to go and they're back to serving God and back to, and they have elevated the klipas, you know, at least to a certain extent. However, when a person engages in forbidden activities, that is different because when a person engages in forbidden activities, this is coming from a place of the three impure klipas that are totally bound, that are totally trapped, and they cannot be emancipated at all. At, through regular returning to God or anything like that. The only time that they will be emancipated for real is when in the future when there's no more death and no more impurity and that and that will elevate them. However, the Altar Rebbe does say that there is is a very small exception, which is that if a person engages in a certain type of tshuva, a certain type of return to God that is so intense and so strong that it leads to this deep, deep sense of thirst and love of God that in this awareness of how far they've strayed. So if a, if a person really gets to that level of that level of tshuva, they can actually transform their sins into merits. And this too can actually elevate these klipos out from where they have fallen in, in, the, uh, in the darkness. And so, yeah, so that's it for today. And tomorrow we are going to conclude chapter seven. I'll speak with you then. Thanks for listening to the It Is Top podcast hosted by Sarit Switzer. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Avraham Yitzhak Ben Binyamin Cohen of Blessed Memory. Music by Shoshana. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with others and subscribe on YouTube, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a five-star review. To find out more about the It Is Taught project, including more information on my soon-to-be-published book, please visit our website, itistaught.com. To catch the latest from me, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow. And until then, have a great day.